Kronos, a techno-thriller in ten episodes. Written by William Hearn. Narrated by the author. Episode 2. Nero. Chapter 7. Eight and a half years ago. Despite the weight of the laden shopping bags, I bounded up the steps to our apartment. Exams were over, and I had submitted my final year project earlier in the day, a full two days ahead of the deadline. I had a month of holiday booked before I started my new job in the city. Life was suddenly looking a lot less hectic and a lot more enjoyable. I planned on cooking a special dinner to celebrate. I came into the apartment and plonked the food bags down on the kitchen table. Max was sitting there, silent. Hey there, Rumi, I said lightheartedly. On our first week in the flat, Max had told me how much he hated being called that, so I'd taken it as a personal point of pride to tease him with it on every opportunity. Max said nothing. I began to unpack the bags and put the food away into the cupboards. Still, Max didn't say anything. Or move. Food now packed away, I turned around to look at Max. He was sitting upright, unmoving, hardly even blinking. Max, are you okay? I said, now concerned. I began to wonder whether he was having a stroke. Gone, Max finally uttered. Gone? What's gone? I asked. All gone, Max repeated. What is? I asked. My project, Max exclaimed. Your university project? I asked. My laptop's hard drive has died, Max said softly. When did you last do a backup? I asked. I suspected that I already knew the answer. Three weeks ago, Max said sorrowfully. Max, I scolded. You know better than that. We went into his bedroom to look at his laptop. Max turned it on, but the thing refused to boot up. I leant down to put my head close to the laptop. I could hear a distinct click-click noise coming from the laptop's hard drive. That's never a good sign. So how much have you lost? I asked. Everything, said Max sorrowfully. Why write up the test results, the data plots, everything. I looked at my watch. It was past six o'clock in the evening. There was little over a day and a half before the deadline for project submissions. I took a deep breath. OK, here's what we're going to do, I said. First, I'm going to my room to get my laptop and you can use it to start writing your report again. Second, I'm going to make us both strong cups of coffee. We've got 36 hours to fix this and we're not going to get much sleep between now and the deadline. Third, I'm off to the big Tesco's at Kennington. I think that they sell computers. I'll get a replacement machine for you, and then we can both work on your project. Got it? Do we have a plan? Definitely, said Max firmly. Thank you. Just promise me one thing, I said. From now on, you'll back up your data properly and regularly? I promise, said Max. Chapter 8 Max has backups? I say hopefully. Where does he keep them? I'm not sure, Faser says. I think he does them most weekends, but I don't know where he keeps them. Perhaps in the desk? 
I shake my head. I had a good look through it yesterday evening, and I didn't see any hard drives or anything else that could be used for backup. Where else could it be? Vesa thinks for a moment or two. Maybe he took the backups with him to work. That would be sensible, I say. Keeping backups away somewhere is a wise precaution, in case of fire, or other damage, or, ahem, <clears throat> theft. Now I think about it, Faser says, I do remember him taking hard drives with him to work quite often. How far is it to his offices, I ask? Not too far, Faser replies. They're on Eddy Street. Maybe we can pay them a visit. Good idea, I say. I'll grab my stuff. I go back into the coffee shop and pick up what remains of my belongings. As I pack up, I notice that the table behind me is unoccupied. There had been someone sitting there, reading a newspaper. I recall hearing the frequent rustle of paper as they turned the pages. An unusual sound these days, as most people read using electronic devices. Unfortunately, that's about all I can remember about them. I turn to a guy sitting at one of the other tables, surfing the web on his tablet. Did you see who was sitting there? I ask, pointing at the now empty table. He shakes his head. Sorry, he says. I think it was a man, but I don't remember anything else. Thanking him for his time, I then check with the barista as to whether the cafe has any CCTV. The barista shakes her head. Oh no, she says. We can't afford anything like that. I head out to the cafe. Faser is busy talking on her phone. So, if I could just come over and take a look around Max's desk, hopefully that wouldn't be too inconvenient. Great. We'll be right there. Thank you. She puts her phone away. Dog is expecting us, she says. It's about 6pm by the time we arrive at the Dorg offices on Eddy Street. Sunset was over an hour ago and all the street lights are on. The building is a small, unassuming, two-storey concrete affair. The only proof that we've come to the right address is a small plaque with the organisation's logo beside the entrance. Only a few lights are on in the building. It doesn't look as if there are many employees still around. Faser presses the intercom button at the entrance to the building. Yes, comes a muffled voice through the loudspeaker grill. Faser speaks into the intercom. Hello, it's Faser Whitting. I'm Max's wife. We talked on the phone earlier. Come on in, says the still muffled voice. We hear the door unlock. We go in. The reception area is dark and unoccupied. The receptionist, assuming that Dorg has one, has gone for the night. We hear footsteps approach from above us. Looking up, I see a man walking down the staircase from the floor above. He's in his late fifties, with thin to balding hair and a carefully styled beard. He has what would be politely described as a generous build. He's dressed in an immaculate grey suit, complete with a colourful handkerchief folded neatly into the breast pocket. He seems vaguely familiar, but I can't quite place him. The man reaches us and holds out his hand. Welcome, welcome, he says. I'm Heath, Heath Buckeridge. I run this place, or at least try to. 
Faser shakes his hand. I'm Faser Whitting, she says, Max's wife. A pleasure to meet you, Buckeridge says. He speaks with a deep, booming voice. His mid-Atlantic vowels hint at a life spent on many continents, but underneath I detect hints of a Canadian origin to his accent. Ah, that helps me place him. Buckeridge is famous, notorious even, for his flamboyant presentations at conferences. I'd attended a session of his at a conference in New York a few years back when he was talking about the post-Snowden-era NSA. He'd started the presentation dressed as an undertaker and proceeded to hold a mock funeral for the NSA. And that was considered a relatively low-key presentation by his standards. Legend has it that he once managed to set a stage alight during a retelling of Cliff Stoll's The Cuckoo's Egg, a reenactment of Stoll's attempt to dry his wet sneakers by placing them in a microwave, did not end well. Buckeridge turns to face me. And you are? he asks. I'm Tom, I say. I'm a friend of Max's. I've flown in from London to help look for him. Welcome to you too, Buckeridge says, shaking my hand. Now, you said on the phone that Max is missing. Yes, says Faser. Since last Friday. Have you seen him recently? Buckeridge shakes his head. No. I've been away in Australia for the past week, speaking at a conference. I only flew back this morning. I had no idea that Max had disappeared. I called here on Monday, says Faser. The receptionist put me through to Max's supervisor. He said that he hadn't seen or heard from Max since Friday. I reported his disappearance to the police and they're investigating, but they found nothing yet. Faser hesitates for a moment, then continues. I know it's a big request, but could we take a look at Max's desk? We think that he may have left a backup of his personal laptop there. Buckeridge nods. Of course, my dear, he says. You're more than welcome to take a look. Anything to help find Max. Buckeridge leaves us through a door and into a corridor, past a row of offices on the ground floor of the building. Only one of the offices is illuminated. Within it, a lone worker sits slumped at his desk, tapping away on his keyboard, music earphones firmly in place. Several windows are open on the display of his monitor, all showing the familiar tell-tell signs of cube packing in progress. He must be using his computer and possibly those of his co-workers, to try to generate cube cryptocurrency. He glances up as we pass the office. When he spots Buckeridge, he sits straight up in his seat and hides the cube windows. Buckeridge says nothing. Either he doesn't realise what his employee is doing, or he chooses not to react. We reach the end of the corridor. The last office, next to the toilets, is the smallest of the lot, but despite this, three desks have been crammed into it. It looks like a typical postgrad office at a university. Buckeridge points to one of the desks. This is Max's, he says. Take a look around by all means. Now, if you excuse me, there's something I want to check. I'll be right back. Buckeridge excuses himself and leaves. We start to look through Max's desk. The drawers are unlocked, which surprises me initially. 
Then I look at the lock for the drawers and notice that the key has been broken off inside it. As the new guy in the office, Max probably had to make do with whatever office furniture that could be found, even if some of it was in less than perfect working order. We go through the drawers one by one. In the bottom drawer, we find a portable hard disk with a post-it stuck on it labelled Home Computer and a date that's less than a month ago. Buckeridge returns, carrying a thick binder. I checked the sign-in sheets, he says. It's true that Max last signed in last Friday. I've asked everyone still in the building, and no one has heard from him since then. Faser shows Buckeridge the hard disk. We found this, she says. Would you mind us taking it and seeing whether we can learn anything from it? It's all we have as a lead right now. Of course, Buckeridge says. Anything to help. Buckeridge escorts us back to the reception area. As we walk, I ask him about the nature of Max's job. I've recruited him to work on our identity rights policy, Buckeridge says. Defining what privacy rights you have as an online individual. He's a smart guy. I remember interviewing him in the summer. He was most impressive. We reach the reception. Buckeridge volunteers to check the email logs to see whether Max has been reading his work email account. As we are about to head out the door, I suddenly remember another question. I pull out Max's grey plastic phone and show it to Buckeridge. Did this phone come from Dorg? I ask. Buckeridge shakes his head. We don't give out work phones to staff. We're much too poor for that, he says. I pass the phone to Buckeridge, and he looks it over carefully. What a strange device. I've never seen anything quite like it, he says as he examines it. I wonder where Max got this from. We're wondering that too, Faser says. Here are my contact details, I say, passing him my business card. If Max does contact anyone here, I'd really appreciate it if you would let us know. Of course, says Buckeridge, taking the card and then shaking my hand. He turns to Faser and places his hand on her arm. I really am sorry about all of this, he says to her. I will keep asking around here. Do let me know if there's anything else that I can do to help you find Max. Thank you, says Faser. I will. We start to walk back to the apartment. Despite the loss of my laptop... I'm now feeling more hopeful than I was this morning. We finally found something of Max's. Chapter 9 On our way back to the apartment, we pop into a late-opening electronics store and purchase a replacement laptop. I want to be able to work on Max's hard disk without tying up Phaser's computer. Once we get back to the apartment, I set up the new computer and then plug Max's hard drive into it. The disk powers up and whirls for a couple seconds. Then a message appears on the screen. Whole disk encryption. Enter password to proceed. Damn, I say to Phaser. Max encrypts his backups. What can you do? asks Phaser. The same thing that I was trying to do with his email, I reply. Guess his password. Phaser leaves me to it, and I set to work trying out the list of potential passwords that I had written down for his email account. However, 
After an hour of futile input, I'm so tired that I can barely read the screen anymore. I stagger over to the couch and lie down. The next thing I know is that it's Thursday morning, and Faiza is bustling around in the kitchen area, making breakfast. After eating quickly, we head straight down to the police station to see Lister again and report the loss of my laptop. And yes, I do have to pay the $250 administration charge. Lister diligently logs the details of the theft. Thousands of personal belongings get stolen from SF coffee shops every year, he tells us. Take better care of your stuff next time, please, he begs. He evidently now has me tagged in the category of clueless visitor to the big city. We leave the police station and start the walk back to the apartment. As we walk, my band vibrates. Iris is putting an incoming call through to me. I tap my earpiece to answer it. Hello, I say, this is Tom. Good morning, dear boy, booms Buckeridge, nearly deafening me. Iris immediately lowers the volume of my earpiece a couple of notches. And good morning to you too, Mr. Buckeridge, I say. What can I do for you? I just wanted to let you know that I've checked our email logs, Buckeridge says. Max last logged into his email account on Friday. So he hasn't attempted access since his disappearance, I ask? It would seem that way, says Buckeridge. I've talked with a couple of his immediate work colleagues. No one has had any contact with him since Friday. They said that he seemed his usual self on Friday. That said, he's quiet at the best of times. He's not much of a talker. Well, thank you anyway for asking around, I answer. That's quite all right, says Buckeridge. If anything else does come up, I will of course immediately let you know. We appreciate that. We'll do the same for you, of course, I say. Buckeridge hangs up. Faiza looks at me. Anything? she asks. I shake my head. No one from Dorg has heard from Max since last Friday. He hasn't accessed his work email once since then either. We walk on. There is nothing either of us can think of to say. Back at the apartment, I resume trying out passwords for the encrypted hard disk. I still have several sheets to go. Faiza sits down with me and reviews my list. She's able to suggest another 30 or so possibilities, which, once I've expanded them to all the likely combinations, means that I have an extra 300 passwords to try out. Faiza then leaves me to it. She heads out to do some more searching and putting up of posters, this time around the harbour area. All through the rest of the morning and afternoon, I slog away, typing in passwords without success. As I type away, in the back of my mind, I am pondering what to do next, if, or more likely when, I exhaust the list of potential passwords. I figure that my best bet would be to return to attempting to get into Max's online email account. Although I've had no luck in guessing his password, perhaps I can try my luck with the security questions that get asked when a user loses their password. 
As I know Max so well, I should be able to guess his answers, assuming he's answered them truthfully. This, I'm beginning to realise, is a pretty big assumption. Every aspect of Max's digital life seems to have been locked down. His smartphone was set to auto-wipe after a few days of inactivity. His choices in passwords appear unguessable, and his backups of data are encrypted. I haven't found anything that looks like a password written down anywhere. Max is taking his digital security very, very seriously. Chances are, his answers to the security questions are as unguessable as his passwords. Failing everything, I reckon that we should just contact the email provider and explain the dire situation. Maybe they can reset the password from their end in order to give us access. To give myself a break from the monotony of password attempts, I take another look at Max's phone. The more I examine it, the more puzzled I get by it. The phone is surprisingly heavy for a modern smartphone, at least twice as heavy as a standard phone of similar dimensions. Could its heft be due to increased battery capacity? I am also surprised to note that the phone doesn't seem to have a camera built into it. These have become so ubiquitous on phones that I struggle to remember the last phone that I had which didn't include one. Looking at the phone's side, I see two small holes. I slide the end of an unfurled paperclip into each of them in turn, and two trays pop out, both occupied by SIM cards. Dual SIM phones, which allow a phone to access two phone networks at the same time, are popular in some parts of Asia and Europe as they allow users to avoid the expense of roaming charges. Why would Max want such a phone? As far as I know, he hasn't travelled outside of the US for a year or two. I return to the chore of password entry. After several more hours of drudgery, I reach the last page of passwords. However, I'm feeling tired. Beyond tired, in fact. My head feels fuzzy and there's a high-pitched whine in my ears that just won't fade. My stomach is growling, but I'm feeling too tired to eat. I get up and check the time. It's the late afternoon and darkness is falling. I give my back a good stretch, then decide to lie down for a little while, perhaps until Faisa gets back. I'll finish trying out the passwords when she gets back and we can then discuss what to do next. Suddenly, I'm being shaken awake. It's Faiza. She's shouting something. There's sunlight streaming into the room from outside. It must be Friday morning already. Still dazed, I struggle to sit up. Wake up, Tom! shouts Faiza again, breathless with excitement. She's holding something in her hand. I squint my eyes to focus on it. She's jubilantly holding her tablet computer as if it were a prize trophy. I've had an email from Max. She pushes the tablet into my hands. Still blinking to adjust to the sunlight, I focus my eyes on the screen. There's an email open on it. Faiza, as most of our financial records and other important documents are online... I wanted to make sure that you had a way to access them in the event of something happening to me. Attached to this mail is a spreadsheet that lists all my user IDs and passwords. 
All the online services that I use are included, as well as the password for my laptop, for all my online services. I've encrypted it using the public key that I created from you. You'll need to use your private key from your laptop to decrypt it. All my love, Max. Looking at the headers of the email, the original creation date is from about a year ago. This was sent via the Dead Man's Control website, I explain. It's a system that periodically checks on you by sending you an email that you have to respond to. If you don't respond within a fixed interval of time, it will deliver a pre-written message to whoever you wish. I've come across the site a few times in the past, but have never felt the need to use it myself. It's principally used by techies wanting to ensure that their online accounts are accessible to their loved ones in the event of their demise. I decide not to mention this scenario to Phaser. Phaser's face falls. The excitement and hope that had arisen from receiving an email from her husband vanishes in an instant. I can see that she's already realised for herself that the chances of Max no longer being alive have just risen substantially. But, I say, trying to console her, at least we should now be able to access Max's files. All we need is to decrypt the spreadsheet using the private key that's stored on your computer. Phaser goes into the bedroom to fetch it. I get up and pull on a fresh shirt quickly. Phaser returns with her laptop. We sit down at the desk together. I remember Max setting both of us up with encryption keys, says Phaser. But you'll have to help me with this. I haven't used them since he generated them for me. No problem, I say. I look at the list of applications installed on her computer and spot GNU Privacy Guard among them. GPG is a popular open-source encryption tool. Max must have downloaded this and installed it. Or, if he was being particularly paranoid, he downloaded the source code for the software and built it himself. After the last couple of days, I'm not going to rule that possibility out. I open a command line window and run GPG to see whether it's already associated with any encryption keys. The output it returns tells me that it is. Probably Phaser's private key. I open her email client and download a copy of the encrypted spreadsheet to her desktop. I then run GPG again, using the dash decrypt command to decode the spreadsheet. This time round, the software challenges us. You need a passphrase to unlock the secret key. Enter passphrase. I turn to Phaser. You probably set up this passphrase when the keys were first generated, I tell her. Do you remember what it is? Let me think for a moment, says Phaser. She looks away for a moment, then looks back at the screen. Yes, I think I remember, she says. I turn my back and she types away on the keyboard for a few seconds. We hold our breaths while GPG runs. Finally, it finishes and the unencrypted spreadsheet appears on the desktop. Success! We open the spreadsheet and a large table is displayed, showing a long list of URLs together with user IDs and passwords. I scan down the spreadsheet until I find an entry for Max's computer. The password is a random string of alphanumeric and shifted characters, 20 characters long. 
I wouldn't have been able to guess that combination in a billion years. I go over to the desk and type the password carefully into my laptop. A window opens on my screen, displaying the top level of Max's hard disk. Double success. Triumphantly, I show the screen to Phaser. Now, the hard work really begins, she says. Chapter 10 With a pot of steaming coffee by my side, the first thing I do is to make a copy of the hard disk. I want to keep Max's hard disk as untouched as possible in case I inadvertently change or delete data on it. I create a virtual machine on my new laptop and copy the contents of the hard disk onto it. Then I start to explore. I begin by making a map of the top-level organization structure of the file system. Max is running a Linux distro. He's a keen user of open-source software, and the overall organization of files is familiar to me. Straight away I look in the slash home directory, and there, sure enough, are all of Max's personal files and folders. Now that I finally have access to Max's data, I have to admit that I do feel some misgivings about searching through it. It feels uncomfortably like rifling through his most personal, intimate belongings. The fact that I'm doing this at the specific request of Phaser, to whom Max had provided all of the access details, alleviates the feeling somewhat, but doesn't cause it to disappear altogether. I generate a directory map of all of the files in Max's personal file space. I'll review it later, after my initial exploration. I then start to browse the top-level folders, one by one. It's clear that Max has been doing a lot of research recently. He has a directory packed with dense, very academic papers on topics such as encryption, distributed computing, and peer-to-peer sharing mechanisms. All of the files were copied into the directory within the past six weeks. The name of the directory is Kronos, which puzzles me a bit, as none of the documents seem to have anything to do with time. I turn my attention to Max's email. I know that Max is a user of the Thunderbird email client, so I know exactly where to look for his email data. Sure enough, I find tens of gigabytes of email, going back a good decade or so. Firing up the email client, I start to sort through the email, focusing on those that Max had sent out. I group the emails by recipient so that I can see who Max has been corresponding with the most. Aside from emails to Phaser, the most frequent recipient of Max's emails is someone called Nero. The emails start a couple of months back and go on until just before the backup was taken. They contain lots of discussion on security topics, backdoors, encryption, spyware and the like. Nero's the one doing most of the questioning. Reading through it, it almost feels like Max is being interviewed for a job. Could Nero be employing Max for on-the-side security work? The last email refers to Max having received a payment, so he must have done some task for Nero. To see if Max has had any more recent communications with Nero, I decide to go online and check his email account there. Using the access details in Max's spreadsheet, I log on. However, When I access his sent folder, I'm surprised to find that all the emails to Nero are gone. Every other email is there as far as I can see. 
Did Max deliberately delete all his correspondence with Nero? If so, why? I suddenly wonder if Max used other communication tools to talk with Nero. I look again at the emails he received from Nero, and there, sure enough, in an early email, is an instant messaging address for Nero. It's on a secure peer-to-peer IM platform designed to securely encrypt all the communications between the two parties and leave no records of the communication on any third-party server. I search slash USR slash bin for the corresponding IM client and quickly find it. I launch the software and a simple GUI window appears on the screen. Sure enough, Nero is in the contact list. In fact, it's the only entry in the contact list. Max must have used this software solely for communicating with them, whoever they were. I look to see if there are transcripts of any of the previous IM sessions between Max and Nero, but can't find any. This puzzles me momentarily, but then I notice that the IM client is configured to delete transcripts on shutdown of the application. Max clearly didn't want any of his dialogue with Nero to stay around after he quit the program. I'm still mulling over the use of the secure IM software when Phaser returns to the flat, having been out shopping for groceries. She sits down next to me at the computer. Learnt anything? she asks. I point to the Nero email threads taken from the backup hard drive. Max was definitely working on something on the side, I say, with someone called Nero. That conversation you overheard was probably part of it. So he was working for someone else, Faser says. She lowers her gaze. Without telling me, her voice trails off. He probably wanted to supplement his income, I say, trying to soothe her, particularly with you two starting a family. However, the fact that Max was keeping the work on the side secret from his wife is troubling. I still have a browser window open, logged into Max's online email folder. Faser catches sight of it. What's this email? she asks, pointing at the email that Max had sent me nearly two weeks ago, titled Advice Wanted. She reaches over and uses the mouse to click on the email. Instantly, a window pops up showing the two-sentence email from Max, asking for my help. Faser reads the mail silently. Then she turns to me, her face clouding over with confusion. Did you get this email? she asks. I redden. Yes, I did, I admit. And what did Max want to ask you? Faser says. I redden still further. I never quite got round to calling him back to find out what he wanted. Faser's expression sinks. I see, she says quietly. I just wish you told me about the email. No secrets, remember? You're right, I say, and I'm sorry. I should have mentioned the email from him. To be honest, I didn't know quite how to bring it up. I don't find it easy to admit that I'm behind on my email. Our conversation is interrupted by a window popping up in the middle of the screen. It's Max's secure IM client. Nero. YT. 
What's that? asks Phaser. Nero must have noticed us coming online, I say. YT is short for you there. I hesitate for a moment, then come to a decision. Let's see what we can learn from Nero about Max, I say to Phaser. I begin to type. Max? Yep. I am trying to mimic Max's IM style based on my own conversations with him. We wait for a response. Finally, it comes. Nero, at last. Wondered where you'd gotten to. Did you fall in the bay or something? I respond. Nope, just had a lot of things to do. Nero comes back to me instantly. Lots happening right now. Need your final analysis. When can you be ready to publish the research? Uh-oh, says Faser, clutching my sleeve, her eyes locked on the screen. Stall for time. Say you don't know yet. I type, not sure. Soon, I hope. Nero responds quickly again. Good. Want to review what you have right now, in person. Can you travel? Will be good to meet face-to-face finally. I think for a couple seconds, weighing up several possible responses. I decide to take the plunge. Yep. Where? We wait for a response. Time drags on as we keep our eyes locked on the display. Minutes pass. I'm already regretting my last question. Perhaps Max and Nero had already discussed the location for meeting up. If so, I've just blown our cover. Finally, Nero responds. Let's meet halfway. Iceland. Can you be there Saturday? Phaser and I both let out long sighs of relief. Our cover appears to be intact. I type, fine. Will I am you when I land? Nero acknowledges. K. Will agree venue after we land. T-T-Y-L. And with that last message, Nero disconnects. The chat window disappears from the screen. Phaser lets out a long sigh of relief. I thought we were rumbled there for a moment, she says. She pauses. But how long can we get away with pretending to be Max? Hopefully long enough to learn if this work is connected with his disappearance, I say. I tap my earpiece. Hey, Iris, I need return tickets to Reykjavik, Iceland. Departure as soon as possible. Chapter 11. Friday evening. Iceland there, flight 680. Seattle to Reykjavik. Iris quickly booked me flights to Reykjavik. The price was only 300 cubes, less than I was expecting to pay for such a last-minute trip. I suppose that Iceland isn't a popular travel destination in November. Or perhaps Iris drives a hard bargain when negotiating with the software agents of airline ticketing systems. Now, some eight hours later, I am wedged into an economy seat at the back of the plane and desperately trying to come up with an action plan for the meeting with Nero tomorrow. What seemed like a worthwhile gamble from the comfort of San Francisco is now, as my proximity to Reykjavik increases, feeling foolhardy and even dangerous. Try as I might, I can't help but mentally list out the ways that I am at a disadvantage for this encounter. 
1. I've never been to Reykjavik or even Iceland before. 2. I have no one backing me up. Faser has opted to stay in San Francisco just in case Max should reappear. 3. I don't actually know what Max and Nero were working on. The more I think about all of this, the more stressed I get. My breathing becomes fast and shallow, and I can feel my pulse beginning to race. I get up and head for one of the plane's toilets. I wash my face, scrubbing hard, and then dry it with a couple of paper towels. The panic attack subsides, and I can think clearly again. Returning to my seat, I resolve that I will insist to Nero that I be the one to choose the meeting venue. I will select somewhere public, with multiple escape routes, should things go badly. I try to relax, but that proves difficult. It's a bumpy flight over the northern wastes of Canada. The pilot has had to twice come on the tannoy and ask the flight attendants to suspend the meal service. My thoughts keep returning to the events surrounding the theft of my laptop. Lister clearly thinks that it's nothing more than an opportunistic theft, but I'm not so sure. I was distracted for no more than 30 seconds by Faser's fall. Someone would have had to be watching me pretty closely to be able to take advantage of that narrow time window. To make matters worse, I keep feeling as if I'm being watched. The sensation began at San Francisco airport. Was it my imagination, or did a guy sitting at the bar near the departure gate keep looking up to glance at me, and continued as I waited for my transcontinental flight at Seattle-Tacoma? I'm glad that my seat is right at the back of this plane, though everyone coming aft to use the toilets seems to stare at me as they pass. Or have I become paranoid? To pass the time, I try to sleep, but give up after a futile 20 minutes of twisting and turning in my seat. There's just too much adrenaline flowing to permit any shut-eye. I think about that strange Kronos folder I found on Max's backup hard drive and decide to do some research. I unwrap my band from my wrist, flatten it and connect to the plane's wireless internet service. I do a web search using Kronos as a keyword. That brings up lots of pages as a match, but they're mostly about time and Greek proto-gods. Nothing that would fit the bill for the secretive work that Max and Nero appear to be collaborating on. After an hour's fruitless searching, I quit and decide to unwind by watching a movie. The film is a medieval action adventure about a group of knights who storm a heavily fortified castle, seeking to plunder its hoard of gold. Only when it is much too late do they realise that the treasure is guarded by a bloodthirsty demon. It doesn't end well for most of the knights. I certainly hope that I'm not about to suffer a similar fate in Iceland. Chapter 12. Saturday Afternoon I watch the steady rain from the shelter and warmth of the coffee shop. The cafe is close to Reykjavik Harbour and a cold wintry wind is blowing in from the west straight off the Atlantic. The weather is quite a shock after the parched dryness of California. Iceland in November isn't exactly cheery. The landscape is dominated by the grey of the sea and the grey of the heavens. Nothing but dense, moisture-heavy, nimbostratus rain clouds. 
Outside of Reykjavik, vast meadows of grey granite stretch for as far as the eye can see. Here, Fifty Shades of Grey would be an appropriate title for the tourist brochure. Icelanders do at least try to combat the greyness. House owners have painted their houses bright hues of red, yellow or blue in order to provide some colour to the cityscape. The cafe I'm sitting in is itself painted an attractive shade of aqua. I've never seen so many different colours of building in one place. I landed just before seven in the morning. After catching a bus into the centre of town, I looked around for a suitable venue for the meeting with Nero. I found this coffee shop after a couple of hours of searching. It meets all my needs. It has two entrances, one on either side of the building, and there are a number of booths where Nero and I can talk without fear of being overheard. A bonus is that the coffee is very good, using freshly ground beans. After the shabbiness of San Francisco, Reykjavik seems very clean and tidy. There's no graffiti and the roads are well maintained. Like every other government, Iceland's has suffered declining receipts from corporation and income tax. Cyber currencies such as Cube act as turbochargers for shadow economies, making it easy to hide transactions from the watchful gaze of revenue collection government agencies. I'm briefly puzzled as to how Reykjavik has managed to maintain its public services despite the tax shortfall. Then I see the receipt for my coffee. My drink is almost twice the price of a similar cup in San Francisco, mostly due to value-added tax being a whopping 50%. Evidently, the government here has decided to make good on the tax gap by upping sales tax. It seems to be working so far, though I can't help wondering just how high the tax rate can go. Sooner or later, the populace will grow sick and tired of paying so much tax, and the smuggling of goods will increase. I sit at one of the tables close to the front of the cafe. I'm logged into the secure IM client, waiting for Nero to come online. I'm already on my third coffee of the afternoon. Both the caffeine and the imminence of my meeting with Nero are making me jittery. My IM client beeps. Nero has logged on. Howdy, I type. Welcome to sunny Iceland, Nero responds. Great tourist location, I type in response. Have found a good place for you and me to meet, down by the harbour, Café Haiti, on Giersgata. I wait for a response from Nero. I wait one, maybe two minutes, then... Got it, responds Nero. Half hour and I'll be there. You can recognise me by the book on my table, Hofstetler's Godel Escher Bark, I write back. Intriguing choice. Hope your research isn't trapped in an endless loop too, responds Nero. I'll be carrying a blue folder with red lettering on the front. I close the IM client and wait. I look out of the cafe window and watch the people as they walk past, bundled up tightly against the wind and the rain. As I sit and wait, I muse again about the wisdom of this gamble. I'm on unfamiliar territory and have no backup. How much information will I be able to glean before my ruse is discovered? What if Nero turns violent when he discovers I'm not Max? 
I console myself with the thought that any information on Max is an improvement on what we have now. And this is a public location, with plenty of people around. I should be safe from physical violence. Furthermore, the police station is just down the road. My daydreaming is interrupted by the doorbell ringing again. Another customer is entering the cafe. It's a woman, about 30 years old. She's tall, at least six foot. Her long, dark hair is tied back in a ponytail, complemented with a red streak of dyed hair that starts by her right temple and runs through to the tail's tip. She glances around the coffee shop and heads over to the coat rack. As she hangs her coat up, I get to admire her athletic build, elegantly framed in a green top. She opens the backpack she's been carrying and pulls something out. A blue folder, with red lettering on the front. Instantly, the mental image of Nero that I've had for the past 36 hours shatters. It never crossed my mind that Nero might be female. I like women. I respect them. I hope someday to love one enough to take a vow with them of lifelong commitment to each other. I sincerely believe that women have as much right to belong in technology as men do. There are many excellent female programmers. Wendy Hall, Grace Hopper and Adele Goldberg are three of my personal heroes. It's just that I've encountered so few women in my personal career. During my university studies in London, my computer science class had more men in it named David than there were women. At my company, the only female employees work in HR or marketing. Nero spots the copy of Hofstetler that I've prominently placed on my table. She comes over. Max, she says hesitantly. I nod. Nero holds out her hand and I shake it. It's great to meet you finally, I say, trying to sound confident. I gesture to a booth at the side of the cafe. Shall we go sit over there, I ask. Yes, fine, she says. We go over to the booth, having first ordered two coffees. We sit down. Nero looks me straight in the eye, somewhat quizzically. You're... Not what I was expecting, she says. My heart rate leaps by a good 50 beats per minute. How so? I say, trying to act nonchalant. You're taller than I heard on the phone, she says, smiling. She speaks excellent English, with just a touch of an Eastern European accent. I'm guessing that she's either Polish or Russian. Oh, you should never judge people by how they sound on the phone, I say. The waitress comes over with our two coffees. I create a bit of breathing space for myself by taking my time over pouring the milk into my coffee mug and then taking two long, drawn-out sips of the drink. All the while, I'm kicking myself mentally. Of course, Max and Nero had talked on the phone. She knows what he sounds like. I'd completely forgotten about this. Fortunately, Nero doesn't seem adept at distinguishing between different British accents. Or has she noticed and is just pretending not to? The possibilities spin round and round in my brain. It's all I can do to sit still and try to act relaxed. Nero takes a coffee just as it came, black. She takes a sip and then places the mug down again. 
I was worried about you, she says. You dropped off the net all of a sudden. I tried to call you, but your phone was turned off. I thought we'd agreed that we would stay in touch with each other. Sorry, I say. As I said the other day to you, I've been busy. Why the big rush to finish all of a sudden? Others are close to uncovering the truth, says Nero. Waiting is not an option for our sponsors. We need to be ready to go public by the start of January, at the very latest. That's one hell of an acceleration, I reply. I'm not sure if I can be ready by then. We have no choice, says Nero flatly. Others will beat us if we delay any later. I take another sip of coffee in order to give me a little time to think. Pretending to be someone else and speaking about a topic you know nothing about is challenging, to say the least. It's going to be tough finishing the work quickly, I say. There's so much still to be done. And I want to be absolutely certain. I let my voice drop away mainly because I can't at that moment think of any way to complete the sentence that sounds sensible. You must try, Nero says, looking me again in the eye. We're depending on you. If it's more money you're after, I am sure that my sponsors are willing to be generous in their funding of your work. I decide to decline the bait. It's not that, I say, shaking my head. I want to be 100% sure... My wife is expecting our first child. She's due to give birth in less than three months. There's a lot going on right now. I understand, says Nero. But this is important too. We cannot go public without your analysis. She pauses and then continues. My sponsors have agreed to give you a 50% increase in your remuneration if you can make the new deadline. Finish to our new schedule and you'll have a very nice sum in hand just in time for your baby's birth. I wonder how much Max is being paid for this work. Nero is certainly making it sound like a substantial amount. The smartwatch on Nero's wrist beeps. She glances down at it, then swears. Good! They're coming! Before I have a chance to ask her what she means, two men enter the cafe they're big and powerful, and they look like they don't spend much of their time smiling. They're definitely more piano movers than piano players. Nero grabs my arm. We have to leave now, she says. The men spot Nero and me, and they start to move in our direction. We grab as much of our stuff as we can and exit via the cafe's second entrance. I'm suddenly very glad that I picked a location with two entries. Not that I imagined for an instant that I might need it to escape with Nero. Outside, we spin around for escape options. I want to go to some place where there's a large crowd, somewhere we can blend in and be difficult to spot. From my reconnaissance earlier in the day, I know that Reykjavik's main concert hall is just a bit further along the harbour. With any luck, there might be an event going on there at the moment. I point in the direction of the concert hall and shout to Nero, This way! We run to the harbour's edge and head east along a pedestrian path that runs beside the dock. Fishing boats are moored all along the harbour, though I don't see much activity on board any of them. Icelandic fishermen like to take the weekends off, I suppose. I turn to look behind us. 
the two men have come out of the cafe and are following us at a good clip. They are jogging somewhat stiffly, each one with one of their arms held close to their bodies. I'm suddenly concerned that they might have guns with them. We run along the path as quick as we can. Well, I say we, but it's really me that's the limiting factor on our speed. Nero's jogging alongside me, matching my speed seemingly effortlessly while I'm already beginning to puff and pant. I make a mental note to never again skip a gym class. We manage to reach the concert hall. It's an impressive-looking angular building, adorned with a mosaic of stained glass, arranged in a striking geometric pattern, draped across its sides. It's truly magnificent, the kind of building that I would normally stop and admire in detail. Not today, however. There's a crowd of people outside the hall, watching some street performers. We dive straight into the crowd and head for the densest part. Ditch your coat, Nero whispers to me, and put this on. She pulls a woolly hat out of her backpack. I do as I'm told. Without the protection of the windproof layer, I instantly feel the chilling effect of the cold wind off the Atlantic. I start to shiver. Glancing behind us, I can see that the two men have reached the edge of the crowd. They're scanning the crowd systematically, trying to spot us. We keep our heads low and move to the far side of the crowd. The entrance of the concert hall is just in front of us. I wait until I see a group of people move towards the entrance. Follow them in, I tell Nero. I'll follow behind. Nero blends with the group while I remain covertly watching the men on the other side of the crowd. Nero's group enters the building and disappears from sight. I wait until another group heads to the hall and then join the back of them. Entering the concert hall, I am struck by the vastness of the foyer. It's massive, with huge escalators connecting the three floors above me with the ground floor. The walls are constructed from grey granite panels. There really is no escaping that colour in this country. I spot Nero. She's heading up to the second floor on the escalator. I make to follow her as quickly as I can. Then I see that our two pursuers have also entered the building and are standing by the entrance. One of them catches sight of Nero, pointing her out to the other. I run up the stairs at the back of the foyer, two at a time, as quickly as I can. I really am now regretting that the total sum of my exercise over the past two months has been running down to a tube platform to catch a train. On the second floor, I catch up with Nero. Keep moving, I tell her. They spotted us again. We enter the first auditorium that we come to. It's currently empty, save for a lone cleaner picking up rubbish. We run down to the front of the auditorium by the stage and head straight through a door marked Utgandgur. I'm hoping that this means exit and not dead end. The door leads us into a corridor with a long flight of steps going down at the end. At the bottom, there's another door. There are big, important-looking signs on the door in Icelandic, no doubt about opening this door only in an emergency. This definitely counts as one. Without hesitation, I push down on the door's lever and shove the door open. Alarm bells ring out all around us. We run out and find ourselves in the car park behind the concert hall. To our left is a rank of taxis. We sprint to the first one and get in. 
To the airport, Nero says to the driver. As quick as you can. Chapter 13 We sit in silence during the drive to the airport, the powerful grey Mercedes speeding through the light afternoon traffic. Every so often I glance out of the back window, but I don't see any obvious signs that we're being followed. The taxi pulls up smoothly at the airport terminal. I throw a handful of kroner notes in the direction of the driver. Probably a massive overpayment for the journey, but I don't have time to check the amount, and we dash from the car. Hope you make your flight, the taxi driver calls out to us through the car window in perfect English. We head into the departures area of the terminal building. Once we're in the controlled, calm environment of the airport, I start to relax. We find a couple of empty seats and I collapse into one. Nero sits down, rather more gracefully, in the other. I let out a long, deep sigh of relief. I think we're clear, I say. Now, exactly who were those guys? Nero lets out a deep sigh of her own. It's a long story, she says. They belong to the Russian Mafia, the Bratva. They are bad men, very bad men. They want our research so that they can make a lot of money. During the taxi ride, I've been pondering when and how to come clean about the fact that I'm not Max. Sooner or later, Nero's going to figure this out, and I decide that it would look better for me if I confess first. Now seems as good a time as any. There's something I need to tell you, I say. Nero looks at me puzzled. I don't know quite how to say this, I continue, but I'm not Max. Nero gives out a cry and starts to rise from her seat. I catch hold of her arm. It's okay, I'm a friend of Max's, I plead. I'm his best friend. Nero tries to free her arm from my desperate clutch. Wait, damn it, I shout. Max is missing. I'm just trying to find him. Instantly, Nero stops struggling and sits down again. Max? Max is gone? she asks. Yes, and we're all worried sick about him, I reply. I came over from London to San Francisco specially to help look for him. I was going through his online stuff, looking for clues to his disappearance when you IM'd. I thought that you might be able to shed some light on his vanishing, so I agreed to meet with you, pretending to be him. Nero leans back in her seat, thinking hard. I can almost see the cogs whirring in her brain as she thinks. This is bad news, she says at last. Very bad news. I decide to introduce myself properly. My real name is Tom. Tom Jenkins, I say. I rather lamely offer my hand for a handshake. Nero ignores it. I sheepishly put my hand back down. Mr. Tom Jenkins, says Nero, deliberately choosing to be very formal. Exactly why did you come to Iceland? Because I thought you might have information about what he was investigating before he disappeared, I say. I know he was working with you on something. I found emails between him and you about some form of computer security work. Nero raises an eyebrow. And what exactly do you know about our work? she asks. I shake my head. Not much, I say. 
I'm hoping that you can tell me more. Nero folds her arms and looks at me sceptically. Why should I? she asks. Because Max has a wife who's due to give birth in a couple of months, I plead. She's going out of her mind with worry that her child may never see its father. Nero doesn't seem impressed by my appeal to her compassion. I decide to try self-interest instead. Look, you want to find Max just as badly as I do, I say. Max was clearly working on something very important to you. You mentioned earlier that you had urgent deadlines. Well, if you don't find him quickly, you're going to miss them. Nero says nothing. Taking that as an encouragement, I continue. I'm not interested in whatever it is you're both working on. I just want to find Max. Help me locate him, and then he'll be able to either finish the work for you or hand it off to someone else of your choosing who can. Nero ponders for a moment. Okay, she says. I will help you. But first, you need to tell me everything about Max's disappearance. Then I can fill in the gaps. I start to summarise the whole timeline, right from Max's disappearance on the Friday evening and Faser calling me for help in the middle of the night. I explain everything that happened in San Francisco. When I get to the part about the theft of my laptop from the coffee shop, Nero looks surprised. Someone may have been watching you, she says, grabbing the laptop when they saw an opportunity. That's what we thought, I say. The police, however, think that it was just an opportunistic theft. Nero snorts. The police, she says, shaking her head with contempt. They know nothing. They're useless. Worse than useless, in fact. Best we handle this matter ourselves. Could the men who chased us have anything to do with my laptop being stolen, I ask? Nero thinks for a moment, considering. It's possible, she says at last. The Bratva operate all around the world now. It's possible that they had Max under surveillance in San Francisco because of his work. And you too, after you arrive there. And what exactly is this work, I ask. Max and I are trying to find Mehmet Yilmaz, she answers. Mehmet who, I ask. Then I recall, oh, the inventor of Cube. Yes, the inventor of the e-currency, Nero replies. As you probably know, Mehmet Yilmaz was a pseudonym. The person behind it never revealed their true identity. He disappeared a long time ago, I say. No one's heard from him or her, interjects Nero. Indeed, I say. Anyway, no one's heard from Yilmaz in over a decade. No one, confirms Nero. Lots of people have come forward claiming to be Yilmaz, I say, or have been accused of being Yilmaz. And none of the claims have stood up to serious scrutiny, she answers. Yilmaz's real identity remains a mystery. And why are you so interested in it, I ask? I do consultancy, answers Nero. Information security consulting. I have clients all over the world. One of my clients is an information transparency policy group, backed by a couple of rich Silicon Valley investors. They believe that Cube's run of success, great as it has been, 
will end if Yilmaz isn't identified. But Cube's doing great without Yilmaz, I counter. The protocol was proven to be rock solid. All the code implementing it is open source, with volunteers maintaining and improving the software. But doesn't the world deserve to know, asks Nero, who really was behind it, and what their reasons were for creating it? I just don't think it matters anymore, I answer. Cube's been proven to work. It's used for billions of transactions a day. All of the source code is freely available for anyone to inspect. It's been analysed by academics in many fields. Leading economists, mathematicians and security researchers have all investigated it and pronounced it safe. No, interjects Nero again. Not safe. They said just that they couldn't find anything wrong with it. That's not the same thing. But close enough, I retort. But with the number of people who've examined it, both the theory and the actual code, any issues would surely have been found by now. Perhaps, Nero says cryptically, perhaps. So why is the Bratva so interested in this work, I ask? These days, the Bratva runs vast cybercrime activities, Nero answers. And not just in Russia. The internet gives them global reach. The proceeds they get from their traditional criminal activities, prostitution, drugs, blackmail, kidnapping, are dwarfed by what they can get online through credit card spoofing, identity theft and ransomware. The Bratva wants to take control of Cube. With it, they'll be able to increase their income tenfold. As such, they are very interested in finding the person behind its creation. She glances at her watch and rises to her feet. Time to get moving, she says. We can talk more about this on the flight to America. I'm not sure that I've heard her correctly. You're coming back with me? To San Francisco, I ask? Yes, says Nero. I will help you search for Max. She holds her hand out towards me and I shake it. My name is Nadia Mirov, she says. It's a pleasure to meet you, Nadia, I say. That was episode two of Kronos, written by William Hearn and narrated by the author. For more information about this novel, including how to obtain an ebook or printed hardback copy, please visit the website at chronosthenovel.com. This audio recording is licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Share Alike 4.0 International License.